We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4. That's in the New Testament. It's a letter that Paul wrote kind of towards the end of the Paul uh, letters. Maybe in the middle of the New Testament or so. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up there. And you can see uh, behind me that we are in a little series called Fields of Harvest. Um, And what Fields of Harvest is, is a a mini-series in the larger series that we're doing. We're in a larger series throughout the year called The Journey, uh, where we're reading the Bible together as a church. And um, the mini-series that we're looking at at this particular time is Fields of Harvest. And what this is, is a study of Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. And so uh, last week, um, and and the two weeks before that, we looked at the letter of Colossians, So we started with Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and following, where we looked at the Christ hymn, the 15 amazing things about Jesus. So the kind of the foundation of this entire thing that we're going to be looking at in this this particular sermon series is starts with Christ. And then the week after that, we talked in Colossians chapter 2 and 3, the end of 2 and the beginning of 3. We talked about a superficial grasp of grace that there is not um, permissible, if you will, or uh, there is not in the mindset of the Christian a superficial gra- grasp of grace, but instead, since we are saved, there's things that are true about us, and there's a way that we're supposed to live intentionally. And we just kind of talked about that on the individual level. Last week, we looked at First Thessalonians chapter 2, and as we were looking at that, we saw this corporate nature of which the way we're supposed to live. Um, and so as we looked at First Thessalonians chapter 2, we, it was kind of in the context of community groups, as one was about the individual and how they live as Christians. Last week was about how, as a church, and how you should live in the co- context of community as a Christian together. The sermon was written primarily towards community group leaders, six things that every kind of community group leader needs to live by, but every Christian can live by those things as well. Um, and this week, as we're going through First Thessalonians, as pro- promised, um, we're going to start getting into, based on some of those things that we looked at before, getting into these questions of end times, eschatology, etc. Um, eschatology just means the study of end times. Um, so we're going to get into some of that. It, it lends itself in the text of what we're going to be looking at. So um, as we've been talking about, everything's foundational with Christ. The way we're supposed to live is important. And now we're going to look at the, the coming day of the Lord and what that's supposed to look like. If you look at your Bible in First Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse 15, you'll see kind of the big idea of whatever we're going to be looking at. It says, For this we declare to you a word uh, by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left, here it is, until the five words there together, the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. This coming is, in, in the Greek word, the parousia, the appearance, the showing up, the, the coming, if you will, is, is, a, is a good word. But in, in the Greek, it's just kind of one word, the parousia, and that's kind of, the, there's been all kinds of, things written about the parousia, this appearance of God, of Jesus, and when it's supposed to be and how it's supposed to look. So that's the, that's the big title of the text of the sermon today, is the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, and we're talking about that parousia, that, that appearance of Jesus, and when it's going to happen, and what it's going to look like, and what might be the, the ways that we should be living, and, and um, what are some of the things that we ought to know. The question of the Thessalonians um, has been written to Paul in some kind of way, and he's answering that. So that, that's the big idea is, since we've been talking about Christ, and since we've been talking about how we live as individual Christians and in community, we're also going to talk about how it all kind of is to be understood in light of the one-day appearance or coming of Jesus, the parousia as it is. So let's, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into uh, the text. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word that you've given to us. We are absolutely and utterly dependent upon your Holy Spirit, God, this morning. Um, I am, and we all are, that your Spirit would come and illuminate the Scriptures for us and help us see and understand who Christ is, understand what um, big ideas like the second coming of Jesus have to do with present-day living, present-day understanding of who Christ is, present-day of love for Jesus, present-day ways that we would live for Christ, whether it would be risky or whether it would be safe. Lord, I pray that all these things will be illuminated by your Spirit. And myself, Lord, I pray for help. I mean, there's there's no way that I can preach any kind of text or any kind of sermon ever without your help. Not only that you would speak through me, but Lord, that you would primarily speak to me, that I need to myself always hear the message of the gospel and be reminded of how I need to live for Christ. So speak um, to us all, Lord, and come in power. And show us Christ and how precious and beautiful he is in your word. 
We love you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we're going to be talking about the second coming of Christ, uh, I think it's helpful for us to start with some definitions. Uh, if you've studied Re- Revelation and end times, these definitions will be review for you. Uh, but if you haven't, they'll be very helpful because as I start saying millennium or rapture or tribulation, <laughs> I want you to know what I'm talking about. So I'll start with some of these easy definitions. They're not very difficult to understand whatsoever, um, but I think it'll help as we go. So there's this second coming is the first or the coming of the Lord or second coming. That coming of the Lord is the second coming of Jesus. He's come one time. So if you travel back in our little timeline, which stands across the stage, you know, this this travels back to eternity past. At some point, God created. And then, you know, later on uh, came the cross. And so the cross kind of shoots itself out on the timeline of all things. And everything that looks this way and everything that looks this way finds its understanding and, and what's happening around it based on the cross. So the cross stands at the, the centerpiece of all human history. And every person that's ever lived needs to look at the cross, whether whatever side of the cross they're on in the timeline, to understand who they are, understand life, understand God, and, and, and all these things. So as you travel down after the cross down the timeline, if you're a dispensationalist, you would call it the church age. If you're a covenantal theologian, you just call it the old covenant, and now the new covenant. We're all in the same covenant. Whichever one you are, it doesn't really matter to me which one you are. But if you keep going, um, you've got another time where Jesus is going to come. So he came that first time, as, as Jordan kind of referenced in in the very beginning, if, for the two of you that were here at the very beginning of the, ser- the service, um, he talked about Christ being the, the lion and the lamb. So that first coming was very lamb-like, uh, sacrificial, meek. And the second coming is very lion-like, uh, a much different kind of, uh, not a different Christ, but a much different appearance of Christ is going to be coming in the second time where he's going to be much more lamb-like, strong, powerful, um, going to set up the kingdom. It, it will not be as it was the first the first time. So that's what we're talking about. The second coming is the general reference to the final coming of Christ where he comes down to earth from heaven to establish his glorious kingdom. That's where the kingdom, the real, finally, it'll no longer, the kingdom will never be, a, or from that point on, a already not yet. It'll be a already here it is, we're in the kingdom. So the kingdom is obviously different than the church. The kingdom and the church shouldn't be used interchangeably, um, but the church makes disciples who will one day be in the kingdom. Anyway, that was not part of the the terms. Um, So we have the second coming. Now, as you're going down, eventually at some point, the second coming is going to happen, and that goes forever as well. So you've got, at some point, the second coming is going to happen. So in that, when when we're talking about this kind of end of time uh, of, of the way the recorded history or however the Bible tells us, there's some There's some periods that happen before we reach the new heavens and the new earth and we're with Jesus forever. Um, The first one uh, is what's known as the rapture. This this word's not in the Bible, but it refers to um, the verses that we're going to be looking at today. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you look at verse 17, it says, Then we who are are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. This caught up together is a snatching, if you will, a grabbing of those who are believers and pulling them away out of the earth and bringing them up to the sky. And we're going to talk about how I think that actually looks and what I think Paul's trying to say. But that, that caught up, that snatching up off the ground up into the clouds is generally referred to as the rapture. Uh, so, you know, for all the left behind readers, you know, forever ago, whenever that, those books were out, there's movies now. I wouldn't recommend them. This is, the, uh, this is what they're talking about. When everybody just disappears and all of a sudden there's just clothes sitting in the car and all the cars are wrecking or whatever. That's the rapture if you believe that happens um, in what's known as the tribulation, before the tribulation, which leads to our next term. The tribulation. So as we're getting to the end here, there's this, there's this little small seven-year w- window of time called the tribulation. And this tribulation, word tribulation, is just kind of a general term referring to the hardships or the sufferings that God's people are going to have to go through. So at the end of recorded time that we have in Revelation, there will be a tribulation, a period of hardships. And this tribulation is generally known, um, thought of to be uh, seven years. So if you look at Daniel, there's this idea of weeks, 69 weeks in the 70th week. Uh, happens at the very end, and the week really means years, and so seven years, and so there's this idea that the tribulation at the very end will be for seven years. Now, that brings us back to the second coming. 
So we have this idea of the second coming of Jesus and the rapture. Will, will there be at the very beginning of this particular seven years when Jesus comes and does this rapture? Or will it be at the end? And when he comes, is the rapture, the snatching away with the people off, is it also simultaneous with that second coming of Jesus? Or is it he raptures them, and then seven years later, he has the second coming, and then what happens after that? So that's where we are in the definitions. Here we go. So there's, there's a couple different ideas. Pre-trib rapture. What that means is before that seven years begins at the very end, it's the view that Christ is going to return in glory. He's going to quietly bring up or snatch up or rapture or take up all those that are Christians up to heaven. And it happens before the seven-year tribulation happens. Um, and that's called a pre-tribulation rapture. And it implies that the church will not be present during that tribulation. So everybody that became a Christian before that seven years started, Jesus comes and takes them out. Now, if you get saved after that, even if it's just 20 seconds after the rapture, you're stuck there for the next seven years. You've you got to be there. Like, you're going to go through it, and that's just, you know, your fault for not doing it earlier. So that's, that's, that's the pre-tribulation rapture view, of which I don't hold to. So uh, that's why I'm kind of teasing it a little bit. So the, the other idea is this, the post-tribulation rapture. This is the view that at the end of the seven-year period, um, the view that the rapture and the second coming are all kind of one simultaneous event. Jesus comes down, he snatches up the church, and that is the actual second coming where he ushers in the new age. Uh, and that's where the saints are going to rise up, or the Christians will rise up to meet Jesus in the air, and they'll accompany him back to earth as the king. And it applies, therefore, it implies that the church will go through that seven-year period of hardship um, and, and suffering. There is another view called mid-tribulation. I've never met one person that actually holds to it. They teach it to you in seminary, but I've never met somebody. So they believe it happens in the middle. Um, if that's you, I'd love to know why. Um, I've never met anybody that believes that. All right, so you've got that seven-year tribulation period. Now, there's also another period that happens after that. After the little seven-year period of, of tribulation, whether it's before or after, we'll see in the text, there's a second period called the millennium. That just means 1,000 years. The millennium is the period of time that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, during which the saints, or all the Christians, will reign with Christ for a thousand years. During this time, that millennium reign, Satan is going to be bound and thrown in a pit. And the, the text says, quote, that they should not be deceived. Uh, the nations will not be deceived until the thousand years are ended. So presumably, that thousand year reign of Christ on earth there will be no sin. If Satan is bound, we will be on earth and there will be no sin during that particular time. We will live as it would be in heaven, the new heavens and the new earth one day. It's going to be extraordinarily awesome. Um, but at the end of that millennium, which I don't understand and I don't know why, it says in the text that Satan will be let go from this, from this um, tying up or pit that he's kind of thrown into. And after that, he'll be eventually be thrown into the lake of fire. So I don't know. Here's some things I don't know. I don't know at the end of the millennium reign, whenever he's loosened, is he tempting people again to sin? And there's this like small window of sin again. And then Jesus like throws him in the lake of fire. I don't know. And I don't know why Jesus didn't just in the very beginning say, lake of fire, done. Forget the little lockup for a thousand years. Like, I don't know. It's written in the Bible. That's the way he wants to do it. There's got to be extraordinary reasons why. And I just don't know. We don't, I don't think anybody knows. But we do know that there will be a millennium reign. Now, that we're speaking of the millennium reign, there's three ideas about how this works. So here they are. There's premillennialism, postmillennialism. Those are the first two. This is the view, the premillennialism is that premillennialism is that the coming of Christ will precede the second coming, that, that lion-like coming of Jesus will precede the millennium or be in, at the very beginning of that, of that thousand-year reign and that Jesus will rule personally and bodily during that thousand years. So here's what we have. This is where it gets kind of a little bit dicey, but not too hard. So you've got the seven years and you've got the thousand. Right in the middle, between the seven and thousand, some people that are premillennials think that Jesus is going to come down at that particular point, and he's going to set up his rule and reign for that thousand years. Now, you can be a premillennialist and a pre-trib. You can think he's going to come down and rapture the church and take them away. At the end of the seven years, he's going to come back and set up his thousand-year reign. Or you can be a premillennialist and a post-trib. 
You can say the church is going to go through. He's going to come down. He's going to snatch the church up. And as the church comes, the second coming is going to happen. So you can be a premillennial pre-trib or premillennial post-trib. That's, that's, that second one is the one I am. So that's, that's the first kind of belief is premillennial. There's a second belief which is called postmillennial. And it's the view that the millennium will come through after the success of a gospel gradually converting the world and ushering what would be the golden age of the church. And after a long period of peace and righteousness, there'll be an outbreak of evil in the, in, during that golden age of the church. And after, after that, it could be a literal thousand years or not, that Christ will come down and then the new heavens and new earth will start. And it'll happen at the, the end of the millennium. That's the post-millennialism. And there's also this third view. This is, you know, there are reputable theologians that hold this. It's called ah-millennialism. Ah means no. It means we don't think there's a thousand-year reign, um, even though the Bible says there's a thousand-year reign. We don't think there's a thousand-year reign, so I like to pick with the ah-millennials, even the ones in the church. Um, there are. Uh, the view that the thousand-year reign in Revelation 20 is just symbolic of the church age in which we live, and there'll be no earthly millennium reign as such, but rather the second coming, whenever Jesus comes, will just usher in the final state of the new heavens and new earth. Uh, and it'll just... So they don't, I'm, I'm an amillennialist. And there are people that believe that as well. So that's kind of the general term. So when I start saying millennialism or premillennialist or rapture or those kinds of stuff from now on, hopefully you're with me. Um, but that's kind of the, the overall uh, definitions as we go. So we're looking at end times. And the whole passage, 13 through 18, um, is, is starts with verse 13 because the Thessalonians have a question. They're, the Thessalonians, more than most people... Are, are very concerned with end times. We even know in 2 Thessalonians, which will be next week, if you look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, um, somebody, they're very concerned with end times. And somebody had gone and, and said that they were Paul and written a letter to them. And they said in 2 Thessalonians verse 1, it says, Now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together with him, that's that parousia, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken or in mind or alarmed either by spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. So somebody had written them and said, yeah, Jesus has already come, and he didn't take you. Don't know what that means for you. And so they're freaking out, right? So they're, they're already, you know, those antsy people about rapture, and, you know, maybe you have some family members like that. They're already a little bit like, let's talk about eschatology. Let's talk about end times, revelation, let's do Like, they're already kind of like that anyway. So as we're looking over here in 1 Thessalonians 4, they're already kind of people that are always thinking about that, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not trying to make light of that. So they have this question, and this question in verse 13 kind of informs the rest of the text in 14 through 18. So here's the question. They had asked Paul in some manner, what happens to people who die? So here it is. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That's a metaphor for those that have died. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. So the question of the passage where all other texts are going to be, the rest of the text is going to be answering is this. The question of the passage, what will happen to those who are already dead when Jesus comes? So they're really thinking about Jesus coming and they're thinking, wait a second, if he's supposed to come and we're supposed to meet him, what about those that are already dead? Are they, how are they going to meet him? If they're not here on earth, how are they going to meet him? I guess, you know, too bad for not being a long liver? Like, um, I, that's just too bad for them. What happens to them? Some of those people we love. Some of those people are family members. We want them to be with Jesus forever. And so they've died. Um, are they just, you know, not going to get to participate in this? What's going to happen? So that's kind of the, the question that they have. Now, three little notes before we move forward to the answers. There's answers in the following. But three little notes I want to make sure that you understand. First, um, Paul is going to answer this, and when he answers, he wants to highlight the fact that Christians, in regard to death, in regard to our, our, our bodies dying, and, and the, the idea of ultimately where we're going to be, he, Paul wants to highlight, as he answers this, that Christians have more hope than anyone else when it comes to answering this question, and that we should not grieve death like people that aren't Christians. Notice what he says. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that have died that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So as we're thinking about this, Paul wants to reiterate, Christians, you don't grieve like other people. You have hope. Christians that die, the other Christians that are left, do not need to grieve like them because we have this ultimate hope that we'll see them again. 
The next thing is this. Um, to answer this, Paul doesn't just give what would be the quick answer. Um, he doesn't just say, what happens when they're dead? He doesn't just say, well, they're in heaven. What do you mean? <laughs> you know, he's assuming they know that. He's assuming they know 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be out of the body means to be at home with the Lord. So he doesn't just jump to the answer that they're in heaven. In other words, this is what he's answering. He, when he, an, ans, he answers what happens to them, he's not answering what happens to them right now when they die. Instead, he's answering what happens to them ultimately. What happens to them at the final stage? He know, they know when they, when they die right now, they're with Jesus. But he's just wondering, okay, they're with Jesus. And, but it says that we're going to rise up there with him. Where are they? Are they just, you know, back in, you know, in the back room? What are they doing? So he's, he, he's wanting to answer the question, what ultimately happens to them? Not what happens to them right now when they die. Because Paul already knows they know they're going to be in heaven. Um, the next one is this. Paul, um, Paul's place to begin the discussion on what happens to everybody ultimately when they die he oddly wants to place the discussion and begin the discussion on Jesus' resurrection. For him, the answer is, we've got to talk about Jesus' resurrection, his death and resurrection, and when we do, then we're going to understand what ultimately happens to everybody when they die. So, he was gospel-centered back in the day. Because um, you can see, for, since we, here it is, we have, we don't grieve like anybody else that have hope. For, for indicating answers coming. That's the beginning of an argument. Anytime you see the four, Paul's making his argument. Four, and notice what he says. If we just stop after this first little fragment. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. So, question, what happens when everybody, uh, those who are already died, uh, when Jesus comes? Here starts the multifaceted answer. It's a very multifaceted answer. But the first thing that you need to know is our answer to this question is rooted in the gospel. Our answer to this story is rooted in the story of the gospel. So he says, Jesus died and rose again. This is the good news. This is the greatest news. This is talking about the resurrection of Christ, that he came and died for us for our sins, defeated Satan's sin and death for us, and then all of the punishment, all of the debt that we had built up was then given to him. This was the analogy I, I heard this or read this week. Um, I've never used this one. I think it's pretty good. Let's say whenever you get married, um, you have one particular spouse that accumulates just a ton of debt before they get married. They have all kinds of credit card debt. They, they did all kinds of stuff. They, they, they owe lots of money to lots of people. And then you have the other spouse who, as they, as they uh, come to get married, they didn't have any debt. As a matter of fact, they had lots of money. They, they had a job. They had all this kind of stuff. When the two become together, in a lot of ways, the one who has all the money, whenever they come together, takes the debt of the other person and lays it on themselves. They're willing to, to take that expense. And vice versa, this person that comes and brings all the debt is now a recipient or an able to take in of the, of the funds that the other person has. In a lot of ways, that's what we're talking about when it comes to the gospel. That's what it means. We came with all the debt. Jesus came with all the forgiveness. We give him the debt. He takes it and pays it for us with his own life. We get all the riches. We get debt relief, if you will, forgiveness of sin. So that's what we're talking about here. We're, this is an amazing, amazing, amazing story. The good news is that all of our debt's paid. The bad news is we're always the one that brings the debt to the whole, to the whole relationship. Maybe you can identify with that, or maybe you can identify with this one. You're like, yeah, you know, but anyway, uh, that's a whole side note. So anyway, um, so that's what we're talking about. Paul, before he gets going, wants to root, wants to find its foundation in answering what happens to people ultimately in the story of the gospel. Now, we need to take a brief excursus over to 1 Corinthians 15 so that you can see something because there's similar language and similar um, things that are going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that are happening in 1 Thessalonians 4. So um, you can turn about, I don't know, 15 or 20 pages to the left to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and go to verse 42. Verse 42. Remember, what we're looking at is going to be describing in a lot of ways the same kind of stuff that we're talking about. The ultimate coming of Jesus and when he comes, what happens to the people that are dead? What happens to the people that are alive? And what's the gift that's given to them in this particular moment? Um, it's pretty obvious right away from verse 42. The gift that's given to them is a new body. So 
let's backtrack one second and let's make sure we all understand. Because, as I mentioned in first and second Corinthians, Paul already knew when people die, he knew that they knew to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. Absent from the body implies you are not in your body anymore. We all know that when we go to funerals. We see the body, but we know that they're not in the body. So what's the deal with the body? So what's going on here is whenever you die, your soul is separated from your body. Body goes into the ground. Soul goes to heaven. Soul is with Jesus in heaven until the eventual second coming. Here we're going to be talking about that body that's laid in the ground ultimately being reunited with that soul. So Socrates believed that we are like a, the soul is a bird trapped in the cage, and the cage is bad, the body is bad, and we need ultimate rescue from our body. The body itself is always bad and always causes sin, and so we need to be rescued, and, and final rescue is, is being freed from the body. This is not Christianity. Christianity is, yes, while we're in the flesh, we, it causes us to sin, but God redeems the body as well, and God is highly concerned about our body. We, we don't just say, well, it's just a body. It doesn't matter one day. God's highly concerned about not just our soul, but our body as well. So much so that whenever we see in the text, we're promised that our soul will be with Jesus, but our body also is going to be redeemed. So Socrates is wrong. We're, this cage is not bad. The cage itself, the body, will also be redeemed. And here we are. This, this is what we're looking at at verse 42 um, as we talk about this, this body, this new body compared to the old body. The old body is what you're living in right now. Um, some of your bodies look great, and some of you would say, my body doesn't look great. I'm in the, I'm in the not great because I'm over 40, but that's just neither here nor there. So verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. So we're talking about that one day, eventual resurrection of those who have, who have fallen asleep. What is sown perishable, that's the body right now, is what's raised imperishable. That's the new body we get. It's imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. That's the body we live in right now. It is raised in glory. That's the new body we get. It is sown in weakness. That's how we are right now. It is raised in power. This is why Socrates was wrong, because the body actually is raised imperishable. It is raised in glory. It is raised in power. It is made to be where it doesn't cause us to sin. Instead, we won't sin anymore. This is beautiful that God is concerned about every single facet of you, not just your soul, not just your mind, but even your physical body right now. What an amazing God we serve. Anyway, verse 44. It is sown in natural body, is raised in spiritual body. If there, is an, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, that's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. So you can see how he's juxtaposing Adam and Jesus. Adam became a living being. Jesus became the life-giving being or spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. We're all in Adam first, and then, for those that are in Christ, we'll receive the spiritual. Verse 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Jesus, is of heaven. Verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. Just like Adam was a sinner, so are we. The rest, and as the man in heaven, so also those who are born of heaven. So as Adam was a sinner, so are we. But if we're in Christ, one day we'll be made like Jesus where we won't be sinners. Think of it this way. I'm sure you've heard and read after the resurrection, the tiny little time that Jesus was on earth as he was walking around in his his body, uh, his resurrected body. In a lot of ways, that's what our resurrected body is going to be like, is Jesus' resurrected body. It's going to be awesome. Uh, It's going to be magnificent. That's what we're going to receive at this particular, at the time where it says, at the resurrection of the dead. Um, I think we're in verse 49. Just as we have all been born in the image of the man of dust, just as all were all of Adam, so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I mean, if you could just sit for a second and just start letting your mind wander all around the ins and outs of what Paul is trying to say, through Je- what Jesus is saying through Paul to us. Listen to that. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Just consider all the ramifications of that for a second. Those who are in Christ one day in heaven, you, you will bear the image of the man of heaven. That's unbelievable that we will be made like Jesus in heaven for Jesus' glory. This is beautiful. Now, verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't inherit God without becoming a believer, in other words. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Okay, Paul's throwing it out there. 
you're not going to understand everything here. There is levels of mystery and there's levels of understanding. And we're going to fall in between those two things and we're not ever going to fully understand it all, but we can understand some things. So we can't just say, well, it's all a mystery. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you're not going to understand it all, but still pursue what you can understand. Here we go. We shall not all sleep, so not everybody's going to die. There will be some Christians that are alive. And here it is. Here it is. But we shall all be changed. Our bodies right now will be made like Christ's one day. We will all have this body change, if you will. And here it is. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, this is very fast, and then notice this language, at the, sa- at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, so we know there's going to be a noise. First Thessalonians 4 is also going to mention this trumpet. And here it is. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. So that's actually getting to the exact question that they had. What about the people that died? We're right here. They will be raised imperishable. That, if we're looking back up to verse 42, that means they'll be given their new body, and they will be changed. They will have a new body. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. That's unbelievable. Now, we had to read that because um, it's these two, these two verses, these two sets of scriptures go together so much. They're teaching on the same thing. And it's important that we have everything that 1 Corinthians 15 is teaching us as we move forward in 1 Thessalonians. So, the first thing that we know in the multifaceted answer is that our answer is rooted in the story of the gospel. Now, here's where we see the next thing. Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, hutos, um, in the same way, in the same manner. This is where it's, think about what he's saying. Jesus died and rose again. And in that same way that Jesus died and rose again, and his resurrection is secure, through Jesus, God will bring back with him all those who have already fallen asleep and died. That's, what are you saying? So in the same way that Jesus died and rose again, that second coming, whenever it is, he's going to bring back everybody that's died. How is he going to bring them back? What's it going to be like? So there's people that are still alive that are Christians and those that have already dead. He's going to bring them back in some way. Well, we have to look over here at First. Corinthians to understand he's not bringing them back in body, but instead he's just bringing back their souls with him. So um, the second thing is this. Jesus will bring with him all Christians, parentheses, their souls back to earth with him. So the question is, what's going to happen? Where are they? Are they just kind of left back in the back room and we don't ever get to see them again? No. Here's the answer. Jesus, when he comes back, is going to bring back with him all of them, here to earth. Well, that's unbelievable. Okay, now we're starting to understand a little bit. That's, that's amazing. So we still have this, this even so, this hutos, the hutos, the in the same manner. What does that mean? Does it mean that in the same way that Jesus came down and then Jesus is going to come out of the, of the grave, just like all the people are going to come out of the grave? Because um, it says in the same way, since they're going to be receiving bodies, we know. Is that what's going to happen? Is that what this in the same way means? I don't think so. Because verse 16 tells us, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. So the direction of Jesus' coming is downward. It's not upward. So this even so, this in the same manner, this in the same likeness, um, we don't fully understand what it means, but we do know that it means in the same way that Christ was, was buried and was resurrected and given new life, he's going to bring them back, and I think it means to give them a new body in the same way that he received a new body. That's what I think the, the even so or in the same manner means. And then it says, um, verse 14, those who are fallen asleep, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. So Paul is getting this from Jesus in some manner. We don't know how he received it. He, he received it in some way. Um, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, of the parousia of the Lord, of the kurios, the Lord, we who are still here will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We will not proceed. So 
there's going to be Christians on earth. And I keep putting us in the category of that we're still on earth because here we are. It could happen right now, but it didn't. So, like, it could happen any time now. We might be in the, we might be in the coming with Jesus section, but I'm just kind of in my mind right now since we're alive, putting us in the, in the, in the already here, um, that they're coming one day while we're here. It could be either way. So my, my whole point is this. What's the third answer? What's going to happen to them? The third thing is, you can see as it says in verse 16, for we declare to you by a word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left uh, until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Will not precede those. So the third multifaceted answer is those who are already dead, those who are Christians long before us, will receive their body first because we don't precede them. They get their body first and then we get our body. Now, you'll notice in the um, parentheses where I list the verses, I don't just list the Thessalonian text of 15b and 16, but I also list the 1 Corinthians 15. The reason why I list that verse that we already read before is because what I'm doing is I'm taking, I am synthesizing 1 Corinthians 15 with 1 Thessalonians 4 by including this, this little quote, receive their body talk. Because if you'll notice in 1 Thessalonians 4, there's no mention of receiving of bodies. He doesn't talk about receiving bodies at all. Look, read the whole thing. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, they'll just be in front of us. In front of us for what? Well, we don't know. It says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of the archangel with the sound of the trumpet. There's that parallel text, how we see there together. And then the dead in Christ will rise. That means how are they going to rise if... He's bringing them with him. Huh. I thought he's coming with them. Why are they going to rise? Okay, that makes more sense. What's rising? Well, if he's bringing their souls, something's rising to them. It must be their bodies. So that's how it's not mentioning. So we need to synthesize 1 Corinthians 15 to understand, I think, fully what's going on. Then we who are alive, who are still on earth, who are left, will be caught up together with them. So they'll be up there, those people that are Christians that live before us, they'll be up there, and then we'll go. So the reason why I'm synthesizing it all is, what I'm basically saying is, they get, they get cuts in line. They get first dibs that the body's being renewed. They go first. So those who have died, they get to receive their body first. Um, and you'll notice that the, uh, the beginning of this happens with three noises. <clears throat> The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet. Now, 1 Corinthians only mentions the trumpet. First, you have the cry of command. And I, I, I want to just highlight this because we think cry of command is just like, you know, here comes Jesus. It's not like that. Listen, the cry of command is so loud that everyone on earth hears it. So you can amp up any sound system you want, and it doesn't come close to the fact that the cry of command, and whatever that means, is going to be booming. It's going to be amazing loud. The only reason I'm wanting to point that kind of insignificant detail out is just to help you see Jesus is massively powerful. So powerful that his cry of command is heard over the entire earth. That's, that's astonishing. And then you have the voice of the archangel is the second one. The voice of the archangel, there's no mention of any archangel in the Bible except for one, Michael, in Jude 9, Michael's mentioned. So assuming this is the voice of the archangel, Michael, from Jude 9, we don't know. We just know that there's three noises, if you will. Cry of command, the voice of the archangel, and then the trumpet. Trumpets are used all over, generally, the declaration of war in the Old Testament. So this could just be the trumpet saying, the war's about to happen, but it's all going to be really fast because I'm Jesus, and so any battle against Satan only takes me about that long, and he's defeated. At any point, I can just flick him with my finger, and he's dead, like he's done. He has no hope. I have a voice that can, cry, that can go all over earth. I, he has a voice that could go over all creation, all over everywhere. It could scream, and earth and Pluto would hear it at the same time. It takes us nine years to get there. He, boom, like he's that vast. And what he's trying to say is, as soon as that trumpet happens, war in some type of way happens, and boom, it's all over. I'm taking over. I'm bringing in my kingdom, and I'm setting up my kingdom forever. So those, and this particular moment here, what we're seeing is what happens to those who are, who are dead. Jesus is going to bring them back, and Jesus is going to give them their body. Their glorified body will finally happen, and then they will be walking around and living on earth. This is my assumption. 
um, living on earth forever. I don't think that the second coming means he takes them up to heaven for a little bit of time. Um, but instead, it means that uh, it happens and that they come back to earth. I'll explain that in a second. So, um, we see that in 16, the Lord will descend from heaven, cry of command, the dead in Christ will rise. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. This is the rapture language. We'll be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with him. So, in other words, the fourth kind of answer is, and they weren't really asking this, but Paul tells them anyway, after they receive their bodies, those who are alive, that's when they'll receive their glorified bodies. Jesus is going to call us up into the air and we'll be with him in that particular moment. And so, um, I mean, it's pretty self-evident. But then we have the last little piece, which is, I think, important. Verse 17, Then we who are alive, who are left with him, will be caught in the air with him, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so, we'll, here it is, we'll always be with the Lord. Now, the idea here is, you can have this second coming. If the, the rapture happens at the beginning, then Jesus takes us up, and then he comes back after seven years. We're, we're with him the whole time, but we get to miss the tribulation. That is not my view. My view is that we go through the tribulation, and then Jesus calls us up into the air, and that's when he, because he comes down, he calls us up in there, and then we come back to earth, and then we go, and he sets up the, the millennium reign. That's what I think it is. Here's why. The reason why I think it's post-tribulation, not pre-tribulation. This is one, there's many reasons, but this is, I think, one of the strongest reasons. Verse 17. Then we who are called up alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds. And here it is, to meet. The word to meet does not have all of its beautiful meaning that we have in English as it does in the Greek. This to meet, the apontesis, means to go meet and to bring back with you. It doesn't just mean to go like, hi there, how you doing, and see you later. It doesn't mean that. It means to go up. It's only used two other times in the Bible. It's used in Matthew chapter 25, verse 6, the parable of the ten virgins, where they go meet the groomsman and bring him back to the banquet. And another time in Acts 28, 15, where they meet, I, I can't remember the context off the top of my head right now, but they meet him and they bring him back. So this meeting um, is as in, you go and you meet, and it's not just any old person. It's as you go and you meet someone, a dignitary, someone important. You greet them. You welcome them. You honor this special guest with fanfare and celebration, and then accompany that guest back into the city. All that is packed into apentesis. So that we know that. Let's read this sentence again, and I think it makes a little more sense. Then we who are caught up, who are left, will be caught up, together with him in the clouds to meet apentesis, to find the dignitary, um, greet him, welcome the honored guests with fanfare and celebration, and then accompany him back into the city to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's what we're talking about here. And so therefore, it only makes sense if, if that happens, that it happens at the end of the tribulation, and then we're with him at the premillennial, at the beginning of the millennium. So that's why I among many reasons, at least, that I am a post-rapture guy because it just makes way more sense textually. Um, we're called by Jesus, met him in the air, and we bring Jesus back to the city, if you will, and we live with him always. All right, so thus far, we've just kind of answered the question, and most of you are thinking to yourself right now, um, okay, fine. What does that have to do with anything this week? <laughs> well, that's a lot of stuff way off. And that, I mean, that's, maybe that's interesting. Eschatology school was fun today. But what does that have to do with anything that I'm supposed to do this week? Okay. Um, let, me, let me make sure we understand. Paul's idea, because it's Jesus' idea, is this. The future day of judgment is always supposed to affect present day life. The future day of judgment is always meant to affect present day life right now. Because we know that there is a parousia, a coming of the Lord. It means that we are supposed to live differently right now because it's going to come at some unknown place. We'll talk about that in a second. But we don't want to be the kind of people that say, well, it's coming, so I can just do whatever I want. Because if it happens and all of a sudden we're living it up in sin, we don't want to be found by Christ to just living for ourselves. But instead, at the coming of the parousia, we want to be found living for Him. So 
the reason why we talk about this, this idea of receiving new bodies and everything, the future day of judgment is always meant to affect our present day life. It's supposed to change our minds and help us realize if Christ is going to come in any moment, I want to be living for him and found faithful for him in that moment. So that's what Paul, I mean, that's basically what he says right here, um, right afterwards. Now, I want to make sure we understand something about this coming, uh, second coming of Christ and how it's different for Christians to non-Christians. Because I've always just heard, thief in the night, you never know what's going to happen. I'm just like the non-Christians. Christians, non-Christians, we're all just kind of in the dark. He's going to come back, no idea. And Paul here, while I will say, okay, it's likely that none of you Christians or me know when Jesus is going to come back. He seems to paint a little bit of difference between non-Christians and Christians in regard to their understanding of when it might happen. Notice, verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, the Parousia, will come like a thief in the night. Um, that just means you don't know. If you knew a thief was coming to your house at 3 a.m., it wouldn't be unknown. You'd have your gun or your shotgun, or you would leave at 1 a.m. because you're scared to death, or you would call the cops. Something would happen. He wouldn't be a very good thief if you knew he was coming. That's the whole point. And he says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. In other words, pregnant woman just never know. Is it going to happen? We're experiencing that right now. Is it going to happen? Uh, it doesn't happen. So, like, basically he's saying, that's the way the second coming is going to happen. Like a thief in the night, like a pregnant woman waiting. You just don't know when it's going to happen. They're not going to escape. But here comes verse 4. And this is what I mean by saying Christians have a little bit different understanding than thief in the night like non-Christians. Watch. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So, in some way, and I can't, I mean, I can't explain it fully. I can say, Christians, the thief in the night does not surprise us like it does the non-Christians. Look what he says. For, argument being made, you are children of light, children of the day. So we're not children of the night or of the darkness. So your knowledge of the second coming, while you don't know exactly, is not like the unbelievers who are just like, no idea it's going to happen. Man, I'm doing whatever I want. Live however I want. Do whatever I want. Boom, Jesus comes. And they're just found like, What? Christians instead know that it's coming. We're looking for signs. There's things in the Bible that explain. We don't know when, but we can see that things might be happening. Jerusalem is going to be happening, etc. And so when it comes, we're not going to be like, what? We're going to be like, yes, Jesus, thank you. So the the difference is, it might be subtle, but we're not just like unbelievers, like, oh, you know, whatever. We're going to be like, oh yeah, I hear the call. The trumpet, somebody blow the trumpet this time. Like we understand in some way, we just don't know when. And so therefore, since he, he says all that, Paul immediately goes to what you're asking or what I think you're asking. How am I supposed to live right now? Present day living then. What does the day of judgment have to live with me living? This is what he says. So then, verse four, I made my argument. So then, here's what, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. That's not... Like word, he's not being like a literalist here. He's saying, live in light of Christ's coming. He's not saying literally never sleep. He's saying, be sober, live like a Christian. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night, mostly. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and helmet of hope for salvation. By the way, verse 8 is just kind of the... The, the beginning notions of the eventual armor of God in Ephesians. This was a very early letter. So anyway, that's just a side note. So the whole point that he's trying to make here is the day of judgment is always meant to be something that you're supposed to understand, that you're supposed to live differently. He even, in the preceding section, says the exact same thing. It's important how you live now. Um, that's just saying that you should live as someone who is being sober and awake. Verse 4 Chapter 4, verse 1, he actually gets really specific on what being awake and sober-minded. Finally then, this is chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord, as you received from us how you ought to live and please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave to you through the Lord Jesus, that this is the will of God, your sanctification. If you're wondering what the will of God of your life is, oh, what am I supposed to do, God? Am I supposed to move to Kansas? Am I supposed to marry this person? Am I supposed to go to college here? Am I supposed to take that job? 
One thing that's absolutely for sure. What's the will of God of your life? I don't know if it's those things. But it is this. Your sanctification. You're becoming more like Christ every day. That's for sure in the Bible. So you can fret over moving to Kansas or whatever, but you don't need to fret over this. You want to know what the will of God for your life is? He wants you to be more holy. He wants you to be sanctified. And here he goes, that you abstain. What does it mean then to live in light of the parousia? Directly. You abstain from sexual morality, that each of you know how to control his or own body in holiness and honor not in the passion and lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is avenger in all these things, as we are told you beforehand, and solemnly warn you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not, um, not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So the second coming is always, the first takeaway is, the second coming is always, always meant to help you see present day holiness pursuit is absolutely important that's the first conclusion that we can make there is a second conclusion that we can make though first conclusion is what does the second coming have to do that god absolutely insists that i pursue holiness the second one is based on the fact that we get a new body the second conclusion is Based on the fact that we get a new body, the second conclusion we can make is this. Because the promised resurrection of our body that Jesus is going to give us, we can now, in this life, take great risks for the cause of Christ. First conclusion is holiness. The second conclusion is you can take great risks for the cause of Christ with your body. With your body. Now, I don't mean take great risks like jumping out of airplanes just because my body's going to be redeemed. I mean, taking great risks for the cause of Christ. I'm not saying it's sinful to jump out of an airplane. I just think it's crazy. Um, like, so here's what I mean. Um, I want to tell you a story. John Piper's kind of repopularized this story about a guy named John Patton. John Patton understands, since I pro- get a promised body, I can take great risks with this body for the cause of Christ. John Patton was a missionary to the South Pacific Islands, presently known as Vanuatu, as the New Hebrides. So if you're staring at Australia on the map, if you, I mean, it's in the middle of nowhere. If you go east um, and, and go up and then zoom in on Google Map, all of a sudden some islands will start appearing. If you're just zoomed out, you're, you'll see nothing. I don't even know how people found these without Google Map, but somehow they found these randomly tiny little islands that are literally east and north of of Australia, middle of absolute nowhere. Maybe that's where Ben Linus is, but the whole point is like, they're in the middle of absolute nowhere. John Patton, that's a lost reference. John Patton was a missionary to the South Pacific Islands known as the New Hebrides. He was there from 1858 until 1905 in the I mean, tiny little islands. Uh, one of them, they said, was seven miles long and two miles wide. That's tiny. I mean, that's really small. Um, it says that he was there for 50 years in this set of islands known as the New Hebrides. And as he was there, despite all kinds of oppositions, and despite the fact that there was no Christian witness whatsoever when he arrived to the island, by the time that he left to this particular, because there's a lot of series of islands, the one island he spent most of the time on, Anawa, when he left, virtually the entire island of Anawa had come to Christ. Every person. He went there. He learned their language. He made it written. He wrote their language down. He told them the stories in the language of Jesus. He made a Bible for them in their language. And they all came. The whole island, this Presbyterian minister, led a whole island to Christ. Now that is an awesome life lived. Led an entire island of people. This is what he said before he went. I claimed Anawa for Jesus. And by the grace of God, Anawa now worships at the Savior's feet. But... This is what I mean when I say taking great risks for the cause of Christ. But for those that are familiar with this story, we know that getting there was not easy. 19 years before Patton set sail to the New Hebrides in 1839, the first Christian missionaries tried to go there, James and John Harris. They landed at the New Hebrides, and within minutes of going ashore, they were killed by the natives, and then the natives were cannibals. They ate them. They ate them. And so prior to Patton's going... When he heard about this, he still, who was a successful minister at his time in his own land, 19 years, he proposed to a group of ministers um, 
19 years later, after John and James Harris had, been, had gone and been killed and cannibalized, 19 years after that, he proposed to a group of ministers gathering, he proposed going back to the New Hebrides or Vanuatu as a missionary. And can you just guess what their thoughts were? He was met with absolute stiff resistance and stiff opposition. Hey, you want to go to an island where they kill you and eat you? Let's go. No? (laughs) I'm good, right? No thanks. He was met with stiff opposition. There was a particular man that John Patton recalls in his autobiography by the name of Mr. Dixon. This was an elder among the group. And he was the kind that kind of spoke that everybody, what everybody was thinking at that time. As Patton laid out his plan for going to be a missionary to the New Hebrides, Mr. Dixon said, the cannibals, you're going to be eaten by the cannibals, which is reasonable, right? That's a reasonable thing to say. This is what is kind of historic, all-time, awesome, knock you down, best, one of the best quotes ever. You're just like, yes, you know, awesome quote ever. This is what Patton says to Mr. Dixon. And this, this, this is what I'm talking about, taking great risk for Christ because of the promised body. Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in years now, and your own prospect, or your own body, is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the great Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise just as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. If I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms, it doesn't matter because the promised body I'm going to give, I'm going to look just like you. Whoever killed you or ate you is no big deal. Whether it's worms or cannibals, the great promise is that our resurrected body will look just like Christ, our Redeemer. And so because of that, because of this amazing promise, what causes us to take great risks for the cause of Christ with these bodies. That's what I think this amazing promise, this parousia teaching is that we have a firm belief that whenever we sleep, whenever we die and we go to sleep, that Christ is going to raise us up, give us a new spiritual body. That truth causes us now to take great risks for the cause of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. All they can do is kill this body. That's all they can do. That's it. And then we get a much better one. So, as you think about this end times discussion, these two, I think, conclusions are laid out there for us, I think, to think about during this time of response. However the Lord's leading you, Maybe it's both, maybe it's one or the other. The first thing is, since the parousia is going to come like a day in the, a thief in the night, not, we're not like the unbelievers, but we're like believers. Since it's going to come at a time you don't know, you need to live for Christ now, now in holiness. Don't be found living unfaithful. So think about that then. Think about that. What going on in my life right now needs to change if Christ were to come today? What sins am I just absolutely fine with entertaining? He's telling us, live differently presently because of that coming day. So think, think. What is it in your life that you're just content with that's sinful? And he's saying, kill it, put it to death. Just like we talked about two weeks ago, Colossians 2 and 3. We're never content with that, but instead we pursue holiness. In our bodies, we honor Christ with holiness. And conversely, the other application is this. Some of you need to think about that and pray and and meditate and confess and stand and give Jesus all the glory because he's said you can. Second thing is this. Some of us are just scared to take a risk with this body for the cause of Christ. I'm not saying you got to go to Vanuatu. I'm saying you just need to walk across the street maybe. Because of this promised coming of Christ, not just... Not just our bodies being redeemed, but living forever with Jesus. It gives us the power to take great risks for the gospel. So how do you need to live differently? Think about these two things. Holiness and living for Christ. And as we worship, maybe you need to sit, think, and pray. Maybe you need to confess. Maybe you just need to ask the Holy Spirit to empower you. And then stand and give Christ all the glory and all the worship he deserves. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you for this time where we can come together and worship. Be with us now as we worship. I pray that as we consider this amazing promise at the second coming, that you will redeem our bodies and that it could come at any moment that we would live differently. We would never, ever be satisfied with sin, that we wouldn't parse the simple teachings of the Bible, parse words and make room for sin, but instead, by the power of the Spirit, we will put to death the deeds of the body. And also, Lord, because we know that our bodies will be one day made completely like yours, that the body we have now has been given to us to live for Christ and his sake and to give us ourselves wholly to you for the proclamation of the gospel to all the ends of the earth. So be with us, Lord, and help us to decide that, resolve that in our mind that we want that. Pray for all my friends here. If they're feeling the conviction of the Spirit, they'll realize that Spirit always comes with comfort that they would never feel condemned because there is therefore no no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But instead, we know love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. And by the power of the Spirit, we can pursue holiness. By the power of the Spirit, we can pursue great risk-taking for the cause of Christ because you're worthy of that. We pray this all in Jesus' name.